0: and welcome to NodeUp one-on-one with James Snell. This is NodeUp number 108, and I think it's the maybe fifth in our series of one-on-one interviews. You can check out the previous ones by going to nodeup.com and having a look, we've had some great interviews so far. So let's introduce you to our interviewee today, James Snell. James Snell is part of the advanced guard when uh, IBM decided to, to hop into Node. He's been around ever since and been one of the key players in Node Core. So James, how about you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Hey, Rod. Yeah, great being here. Yeah, I'm James Snell. I'm in Fresno, California, which is you know not exactly a, a technical hub of, of <laughs> California. We're quite a bit removed from the Silicon Valley area, but I am with IBM. We've uh, been involved with Node for, geez, about almost two years now. I think yeah, just coming up on two years.
0: And I'm Rod Vag. I'm even further removed from Silicon Valley. Unbelievably removed. <laughs> <laughs> I work on open source at NodeSource, I'm part of the Node Foundation TSC and TSC representative on the Node Foundation board, and I occasionally do NodeUp interviews. Today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean, and you'll hear a bit more about them later on, and you'll also hear about how you can sponsor NodeUp. So let's delve a bit deeper into who James is and and what he's about, and let's let's go right back and... James, how about you tell us how you got into the tech industry in the first place? What inspired you to, to get into tech? Was it late? Was it early?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to remember back. I think first I wrote my first program on a TRS-80, I think, when I was eight years old. So I, I have to say probably early. <laughs> uh, I was kind of dinking around on it there for a while. And then right out of high school, I went to work for one of the Native American casinos here in California. I was working as a night security dispatcher on the graveyard shift and it was extremely boring so to pass the time I wrote a document management system for them. (laughs) One morning the IT director came in and asked for a form which normally would be pulled out of the drawer and dropped on the photocopier and I just hit a few buttons and printed it up for him. About a, a minute or two later I was working for him so that was kind of my introduction
0: to the industry. (laughs) Did you uh, end up getting any formal training, any technology-related things, or it's just been one thing to another?
1: It's just been one thing to another. You know, pretty much everything is self-taught. I did finally go back to to college after I went to work for IBM, but that was, you know, it's a pretty pretty basic program that that I went through uh, there and and discovered that the, the experience I had built up to that point pretty much covered
0: everything that they were
1: teaching in that program, so...
0: Yeah, I think that's a pretty common experience. Mine's basically the same as that. Although I did start—I I started um, a university degree before I got a proper job, but I ended my university degree fifteen years later. So, well, I—I <laughs> I, I started kidneys.
1: mine. I started mine, then I realized I could make more money actually out working than sitting in a classroom. Yeah. <laughs> I kind and, of and the there for a while. As well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well,
0: how, so how did you get into IBM? That's not a straightforward path, surely.
1: Oh no, no, that was a few years later, I was working for a small system integrator here in the California Central Valley and one of the projects I was working on ended up using a little bit of open source from Apache. Through that project I started getting involved with contributing to open source and met up with a few IBMers who were also involved in the project. This was, oh gee, 16 years ago. That relationship and the project I was working on is really what led directly to me working for IBM. They gave me a call a few months later and and just said, hey, come on out and and let's talk. And, um, you know, 16 years later, here I am.
0: And have you always been uh, doing what you're doing now at IBM or has it been a progression from some other role?
1: It's definitely been a progression. I've I've bounced around the company quite a bit, actually. I've been focusing on open source and emerging technologies Pretty much the entire time, but when I started, it was with a, um, a project called the Emerging Technologies Toolkit, and this was back 2001, 2002. And w- what that toolkit was was IBM's prototype implementation of all of the web services stuff, so SOAP and WS Security, and all that mess of stuff that was that, that fell under that WS Star umbrella. The team I was on was really responsible for the initial prototyping of those specs. Mm-hmm. From there, I, I, I took a stint over in the uh, CIO's organization, which is the it, 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 the group I was in. It was really responsible for taking uh, emerging technologies and figuring out how to, to use them for IBM's own benefit. And for probably, I think about six years, I was developing and running IBM's internal social networking environment, what we called Blog Central back then, was part of the team that was responsible for launching blogs and bringing those types of tools into the company. So that was pretty fun. After that, I did a short stint over in the formerly Lotus product group. That, That group's been rearranged and reorganized now into our social tools division. Uh, and then but Lotus is still alive. Though, Lotus, Lotus is still alive. It's now you know IBM Notes, not Lotus Notes. The, the products are still there. They've been renamed, and the teams have been shifted around, but they're still there. And then you know that led to where I'm at now, which is I'm in the Open Technologies group, focusing primarily on open source nodes specifically. So
0: now, so IBM has been around forever, like since the dawn of time. But they're also they're not new to open source, are they? And they've been participating from the early days when open source became started to become a big thing what I'm interested in is is IBM's journey to node how did it get there and and can you tell us a bit about how IBM went through getting involved in node because I know it wasn't a straightforward process and and IBM is the proverbial thousand pound gorilla how how do you go about maneuvering that thing in there and I know you're you were part of you, you played a pivotal role in that
1: my first my, my personal first experience with node was not particularly positive. I opened, you know, I found a bug in the HTTP stack, reported it, and was promptly told that I didn't know what I was talking about. And I decided, you know, I I was just going to walk away. And this was probably about three years ago. Someone within IBM found out about that, and probably about two years ago came up to me and said, hey James, heard you uh, you had contributed to Node before. We have some things we want you to work on. (laughs) At first I wasn't particularly happy. But, you know, basically what it came down to is that IBM recognized that Node was a platform that our customers wanted to use, our partners wanted to use, and it was something that we needed to get more involved with, you know, and build an expertise internally. At that time, however, there was quite a bit going on in the community, the IJS fork, and, you know, just a lot of things that just weren't too healthy. And we, we realized really early on that if we were going to get involved, if we were going to use this, we needed to, to be willing to, to step in and help get the community back to a, a, a healthier standpoint, right? And, and help the project succeed rather than just use it and hope for the best, right? My role started, you know, I think it was like January 1st, 2015, I think. I took over as IBM's technical lead for Node. And what that basically means is that all of IBM's contributions to Node, they come from across the company. And IBM's a huge, huge company. There's so much going on. We need to have the ability to coordinate efforts through central points. I am that central point for Node. So anything that comes out of IBM to the Node community, I touch that at least some point to make sure that we have a very consistent point of view and also make sure that we are engaging with the community in a healthy way.
0: What's what's a healthy way?
1: You know, making sure that we're not dominating a project. Like one, When we first started getting involved with Node, and it became known within the company that we were going to be contributing, there was actually a flood of internal engineers who wanted to contribute. And at that time, there was quite a bit going on in the the, the, the ecosystem where it just wouldn't have been great for IBM to jump in with a hundred new contributors like day one so we really needed to make sure we took a softer approach it didn't come in and say hey we're IBM we're kind of taking over right it's you know what does the community need where can we help where can we best fit into this project to, to help moving forward for everyone not just uh, not just IBM yeah you know, and making sure that the contributions we are making are, are in everyone's best interest not just IBM's best interest but, you know, that, that's really kind of, you know, the role I play. So, yes, I work for IBM, but, you know, IBM only gets a benefit out of Node if what we're doing there benefits everyone
0: who's using Node. Yeah, I've, I've, I've experienced this actually working with both you and Todd Moore, who's on the, the board of the Node Foundation and, and seeing different perspectives and the interplay between you both in, in trying to find, you know, ideal positions for Node, for IBM, you know, and, and balancing all of the concerns. It's been fascinating to watch. It must be quite hard, actually, given how IBM has some very broad interests.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it can, it can definitely be hard. And, you know, and I, I work for Todd. He's actually my, my boss's boss. And, you know, we, we, we've been able to maintain a, a very clear separation between Todd representing the business interest that IBM has in Node and myself representing the technical interest and the technical needs of the community. We actually maintain that separation internally as well, to make sure that when I'm looking at Node, when I'm looking, you know, evaluating pull requests, and I'm looking at what contributions are, are, you know, need to be made, I'm, I'm not looking at those from an IBM business point of, point of view. I'm looking at those from a, what is in the best interests of Node, and Node's users point of view. And I think it's, it, it's vital that we have that distinction not just from IBM, but all of the people who are participating in Node. I mean, that's why we set up the foundation the way we did with this distinction between the board, which handles the business side, and the TSC, which handles the technical side, with autonomy between those. Echoing that and how we engage with Node is critical.
0: There's you. There's a couple of other full-timers, or at least one other full-timer, there's some part timers, and then there's some occasional contributors to Node. Can you tell us about some of the the people that and what they do around Node from IBM?
1: So, we have a, a, a couple of different teams. So, there, there's Michael Dawson, who's who's also on the, the the CTC, and he is really our our leader from what we call our runtime team. The runtime team is responsible for, for all of the build infrastructure and the tooling infrastructure for Node internally. They produce our internal builds of Node. They support our Bluemix um, platform-as-a-service Node environment. They also provide support for our Java runtime, and uh, they're also looking at Swift runtime now. And they, they do all of the infrastructure stuff for us. And Michael's team is actually f- you know, fairly large. I mean, he's, he's got a, a number of people that are working either directly on Node within core in the various uh, working groups like the build working group or the postmortem working group or API working group, those kinds of things. But there's also a significant number of people kind of behind the scenes that are working on things like test infrastructure. And whenever there's a new build of, you know, or a new release of Node, we have people that, you know, we kinda of hand it off to and say, here, go test this, make sure there's nothing that, that that's really that's really bad, that kind of thing. So there's there's a lot behind the scenes there. We also have the Strong Loop team. IBM acquired Strong Loop last year. That team is alive and well working on products that, you know, that that use Node. That they don't, you know, necessarily work on Node directly, but they, they do work on and contribute to significant parts of the ecosystem, things like Express. They're there, they're involved. And then there's you know people like you know myself and, and Miles Borens, sort or of the Alpha Nerd on, on GitHub. IBM has basically tasked us just for working on on core full time, right, and doing whatever needs to be done with core
0: I've so. got uh, Stephen Loomis as well. He's got an interesting role there.
1: Stephen Loomis is our technical lead for ICU. To, you know the internationalized components for Unicode, and you know Stephen has been involved with that project for. Uh, you know, for a very long time. He is our primary representative to the Unicode organization. They've recently you know, taken Unicode and, and actually contributed it to the Unicode organization. It's now an open-source project of Unicode, where before it was an IBM project that we had out there. Stephen does a, a, a ton of work, and you know, he's, he's really pretty much the support we have for all of the internationalization work that we're doing in.
0: There. And that's ICU. So we ship that in core now as well. So that's, that's become pretty key to what we do. Yeah. So what do you spend your average day doing with node then?
1: I get to have my hands in node core code every day. Uh, and yes, there is organizational stuff with the foundation. I am on the TSC uh, and the CTC. I've purposefully been trying to do less organizational stuff here lately and more focusing on code. So, you know, we're getting ready to do the node V7 release. I think that's coming up like in about a week and a half. So I've been working on that, getting testing done, landing pull requests that need to land there. But there's other things I've been working on. Improving nodes support for various standards, like URL parsing or HTTP 1 and HTTP 2. I've been looking at those you know, pretty heavily here. Recently, we j- just landed this week the WhatWG URL parser support as an experimental feature eventually that is in, uh, intended to replace the existing url parse it's going to be a long road before we we get that far but
0: uh, yeah. we might we might <laughs> dig into some of the details about the differences there because yeah. it's it's not it's not straightforward is it no no it's uh,
1: uh url parsing is one of those things that that you know you're, it really should be simple on the on the surface but it is incredibly complex when you get into the details especially uh, when you look at all the different types of URLs there are, in the, and um, if you spend some time actually looking at the specs for how, I'm gonna say, fluid and versatile this, <laughs> the, the, the syntax actually is, there's a lot
0: of gotchas. So that's a fun one. In part two of our we might look at more detail into the, some of the actual stu- stuff you're working on right now. But it sounds like your average day with Node is pretty much heads down in code, heads down in, uh, in issues, responding to things, your typical open source stuff, but full time.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and honestly, it's a blast. I mean, you know, just kind of lose myself in in whatever the project needs. Really, just kind of completely go heads down for a while. It's uh, it makes it very nice.
0: What about non tech things, James? What do you do for enjoyment that's not related to your work? Do you have a way of letting off steam that doesn't involve the keyboard? <laughs> oh,
1: with the kids, you know, it's pretty much you know when I'm not working, it's you know helping with homework most of the time or just kind of hanging out and chilling out around the house, trying to do as little as possible. Get some time to, to pick up a good book and, and, and read for a while or just get out and get to the gym. You know? but, I
0: think you went on a camping vacation recently. Is that a regular uh, thing that you do? Yeah,
1: I uh, try to get away once a year at least. This last time we, we went up for a week up at Shaver Lake, which is a beautiful lake here. It's only about an hour and a half out of Fresno here. Just a beautiful area. Just kinda, you know, no electronics, told the kids to leave you know, phones and tablets at home. I left my laptop at home. Had to bring the phone just, you know, for emergency purposes, but tried to keep it keep it put away. But you know, got out on the lake, jet ski for a day, boat for a day, and just pretty much just do nothing
0: for a week. That was <laughs> that was nice. Yeah, that can be novel for nerds sometime, but difficult to detach. Oh yeah. We might hear from our, our sponsor, DigitalOcean there.
1: DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly, and the easiest to scale when you find success. Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds, or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. Scale your infrastructure using advanced features like floating IPs for high availability, private networking, and API access for automated deployments. DigitalOcean is the fastest-growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser-focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. Visit DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code NodeUp on the billing page for a $10 credit to get started
0: today. Welcome back to Note Up. This is part two. We're going to look into what it is you're actively working on now, James, because I know you're working on some really interesting things that are starting to see the light of day in Node, and these will impact node users so they're going to be very interesting. So let's talk first about node v7 which by the time people are listening to this may have come out or it may be coming out around the time of this show. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about node v7 and what kinds of things are in there and what to expect if you are either going from v6 or perhaps even earlier.
1: Yeah, node v7 uh the target date right now I think is October 25th. The big thing for for v7 is that it will be shipping V8 version 5.4 and I believe this is the first time that we'll we'll have shipped a version of Node a new a new Node major with the absolutely current version of V8. You know, so we get all kinds of goodies in there. That's something like 98% ES6 features. Even have async await in there behind a flag, not you know, not officially supported yet, but it's there. So there's all kinds of really, you know, interesting JavaScript language goodies that are going to be in in, in V7. For the most part, though, V7 is a kind of an interim stable with our release cycle. You know, as you know, odd releases are only supported for, like, I think up to nine months. The even-numbered releases, like version 4, version 6, are the ones that transition into LTS, which is like 30 months of, of support after they transition. V7 is really a kind of a developer preview of what's coming, right? It's intended to give developers, you know, module developers or enterprises a kind of a stepping stone for keeping up with what's happening in Node Core between uh, LTS releases. It's not really not one that they should deploy for, you know, with the intent of long-term use because support for V7 will expire in June of next year, so... But yeah, that's coming out. Several interesting things in there, but the, the the you know the most exciting thing is that are the new JavaScript features.
0: So we, we've changed the process a bit, haven't we? With with regard to cutting new major versions, instead of just you know whatever's ready to ship, we just ship it. We're, we're trying to do a little bit more stability work, aren't we? Can you tell us about the process there because you've been leading most of that, right?
1: So with V six last spring, we tried something you know we tried something new in terms of just taking the major uh, 6.00 and and just cutting it directly off of master and just saying whatever landed whether it's semver major, semver minor, whatever whatever landed before we actually cut the release that's just what would go into the release. And we ended up having a a few semver major changes land just a couple of days before v6 went out. It ended up leading to a number of very significant regressions and compatibility issues with the ecosystem. We had a, a number of significant modules that were just, you know, falling down because of those changes. It took us a little while to get those issues ironed out, but we we eventually did. With V seven we wanted to avoid a repeat of that and to make sure that when V seven is cut on October twenty fifth, it is known to be stable. We did that by actually cutting the branch back in September. And we've been doing regular beta builds from that branch, cherry picking changes from master into that branch as we go, being very careful of which ones we actually pick. It turns out that December majors that have landed in master have been safe to go ahead and land. We haven't seen any major regressions. The beta testing process has been key to that, to kind of figuring out what you know what is safe and, and you know, what we need to be more careful on. The other interesting thing that we did different this time is that for the first time ever, we actually landed a non-stable beta version of V8 in Master and in V7 so that we can get early testing before it went stable. Um, and that, that's a
0: special case, though, isn't it? That was we a, normally wait till they're stable.
1: Yeah, that's a special case. We normally wait. Ideally, if we can wait, we should. In this case, the, the dates for when 5.4 was going to be stable aligned too closely with when we were gonna cut version 7 but it just made uh, sense for us to ship v7 with 5.4 uh, and in order to do that we had to do this early beta testing and just get it landed so the fortunate thing is the version of uh, 5.4 that's that's in the tree right now is the version that just went stable I think it went stable yesterday so we should be good, good to go as far as v8 is concerned so now it's just a matter of doing a few release candidates for Seven zero and and pushing that out the door on October twenty fifth.
0: Great, and we've seen great uptake of. I, I'm looking at the numbers the other day of version six uptake over its lifetime, and it's just this steady increase, and and like like the slope of the curve of downloads is is sharper than anything we've seen before. And I would expect the same thing to happen for V seven, but it will be interesting to see the dynamic, given that v- version seven won't be turning into an LTS. I suspect a lot of people don't. Either don't know about that, or don't care because they're just going to use the latest, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, I think I think there's a ton of people that are looking forward to things like async await, or you know, they're they're wanting to start playing with that. You're going to see a, a, a spike of people download seven just as you get those latest JavaScript language features. At the same time that we're doing this v7 release, v6 is transitioning to LTS, and we're going and telling you know anybody that's using version four or even you know on zero ten or zero twelve now. That they really need to be upgrading. All right, they need to move up. You know, if you're on zero ten zero zero twelve, go ahead and go. You know, to either four or six. If you're on four, go to six. So I think that we're going to continue seeing that that upward trend with V six, that very rapid upward trend with V six continue, at least through the rest of this year. And then I think you know, V seven is probably going to be a little slower. Then I think we'll see it jump again when we get to V eight next spring.
0: Node V eight. Yeah, V8 with V8 whatever version so V8 V8 that's going to be your fun time. It it we have to try to and i you know
1: we have to try to get V8 V8 and V8. It it just has to happen. This, this has to
0: be a thing. <laughs> you you're also doing some URL stuff and that, I, I believe that's already landed in master branch, but it's not gone into version six. But there's going to be some new versions, new new stuff in version seven with URL. Tell us a bit about what's going on there.
1: Yep. Browser developers have, for for some time, been able to use this URL object in the browser. So if you just do new URL, and you get this object, it does all the parsing for you. And that is really based on this specification from the WhatWG working group, this URL parser specification. It is a very flexible, very robust parser for URLs. For anybody that's, that, that just a little bit familiar with URLs, the parsing can be incredibly complex. Different types of URLs, whether it's a file URL, HTTP, mail-to, all these different types of identifiers actually have different rules that apply to each. So the rules for actually, for parsing a URL can become incredibly complex, even when you break it down to the individual pieces, you know, for, you know what part's the authority, which part is the path, which part are the query string parameters. WhatWG WG spec uh, for URL parsing has broken this down into a very robust algorithm that focuses on backwards compatibility, focuses on a huge number of use cases. The URL parser in in Node currently, so if you use the, the URL module. There's the dot parse method, right? Yes, it does URL parsing, but it actually ends up failing. Close to I think I think it, you know, when I when I ran it, 600 of the tests that the What WG parser Provides, that's 600 different variations of URLs that just the existing node parser doesn't handle, and we've had a, a fairly significant number of issues raised about the URL parser with you know things that's not handling certain edge cases with auth and username and password stuff, or doesn't handle some weird common you know way of serializing IP addresses, and there, there's there's a number of ways that it's just you know uh, that it just falls down currently. It's, it's incredibly fast, but it just doesn't cover all of the use cases. The WhatWG URL spec was written to to meet all of those, and the new implementation that, that just landed this week in master implements that spec pretty much exactly to the letter to what browsers are currently doing. So you can do a new URL, pass it, you know, pass the URL string and, and work with it exactly like you would on the browser side. The one difference is it's not a global, so you have to do the require URL module, and then do a dot URL to get that constructor. It's there. It's still undocumented. It's considered an experimental feature. While we kind of make sure it works and work on improving the performance, but the goal is to eventually replace the URL parse um, that's currently there with this new object. So
0: it's going to be a hard path, though, isn't it? It's because it's it's not the same. Yeah, it's 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 very very different.
1: The the API is different. The you know, some of the the parsing semantics are different. You know, it, it's definitely not going to be a, a quick or easy transition. But if you, you know, if you if you have code that's that's already working on the on the client side and the browser side that's using URL, then it should just work.
0: I guess we uh, we'll have to start recommending the way you get the URL object is with this new method, and then eventually deprecate the old one, and then perhaps swap it out. I think that path is unclear at the moment, but yeah, it may or may not happen in some in in our lifetime. Oh yeah. <laughs>
1: And you know, and there's also I, I'm putting a proposal in front of TC39 to hopefully get the URL object added to the language, so that it's just a global that's in the language. Now it can still be provided the way we currently do it, which is kind of adding this in, or you know, on the browser side. You know, it's not it, it's there as a global because the browser is provided as a global. Just make it a little bit easier for, for that transition path if it's just there as part of the language. That way we can get to that URL object in a consistent way, browser side or
0: node side, whatever. So. Okay, so it's there anyway, so we may as well have it spec'd out in, in the right place. That will be in version 7?
1: That will be in version 7. Again, as an experimental feature, and it is undocumented. My plan is to try to get it out of experimental by node V8.
0: Okay, and you'll be able to use it by saying require URL... Dot, URL in all
1: caps. Yeah, all, all caps. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So people can give that a go. You've also been tinkering a lot with HTTP two, which is no trivial journey. What What have you been doing there?
1: Yeah. This is This is a fun one. So HTTP two is quite a bit different than HTTP one. If you're not that familiar with the protocols, it's 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 essentially a brand new protocol that uses this binary framing and and has multiplexing and flow control and prioritization, all kinds of wonderful new things including stateful header compression. There's, there's a bunch in there. So I've been kind of playing around with what would it take to actually get HTTP2 into Node Core. To that end, I've started and created a repo. It's at the github.com port slash nodejs forward slash HTTP2 the repo is a clone of the core repo but it adds in a new dependency on the ng 2 library which is the same http2 implementation that curl uses and a few others you know i've been working actually this week on getting some glue code in there to basically make make it so that from node we can use the ng library to implement an http2 server and client it's gonna be a long road. It's a very complex protocol. There's all kinds of issues around API compatibility, like you no, know, how close would we want an HTTP 2 implementation to look and act like an HTTP 1 server, right?
0: Well, what are the biggest challenges there? Is it, is it the, the statefulness of the protocol? Or what, what, are, the, what is, are we bumping up against?
1: The biggest challenge actually is the details of how it's implemented. So the, the current HTTP module in Node and the HTTP parser is very, very optimized to the text nature of HTTP 1. The, the implementation is writing directly out to the socket where it's, you know, writing out line delimited text, right? Or the, the, the parser is designed, you know, its state model is designed around going through and parsing out the text. The complexity here with H2 is that none of that code can be reused, that it has to be a new implementation that, that, that understands the framing model. That understands the flow control and the multiplexing and, and these new features that are in HTTP2. When you have an, a, a new implementation under, under the covers, there's a question of does the API need to be the same, right? And how do we make sure that it's the same? Does it need to be close? How close does it need to be? Or should this be just a, a, a brand new API because it is a brand new protocol? The implementation, thankfully, because of ng, HTTP2, that library is, is extremely well well built. That's probably one of the nicest C APIs I've worked with in a long time. It handles most of the heavy lifting. A lot of the complexity is not just you know making it work. It's making it work in a way that is consistent with what Node currently does.
0: Is there a proposal for a new API, or what's the status of that, or are you just tinkering at the moment to come up with it?
1: Tinkering at the moment to come up with it. The The idea is for there actually to be two APIs. One that operates on a low level that deals with things like an HTTP2 session and the individual streams in the frames. And one way to imagine it is you would have a a stream where you'd have an on-frame event. Right, Every time a frame comes in, you could process that frame deal with it. Or you can have you know you know work with the flow control and the prioritization directly right as, as API primitives. That you know that is really a low level. What you don't get there are the HTTP semantics. So you don't have request and response. You don't have the get and put and post. It's just dealing with a stream and passing these binary frames back and forth on the stream. The second API is the HTTP specific API and this is the thing that needs to look and act very similar to what the existing HTTP module gives you so you'd have a create server where you pass in a callback that has like a request and response object right and then you can you know get your request headers and then you know write to your response object that will be using the streams and the frames under the covers but it'll look and act very similar to what node developers currently do. The trade-off is that you don't may not necessarily get all of the features like when you're using that higher level API it'll be harder to do things like the flow control right it'll it'll be possible that a lot of those those details will be abstracted away if you're using the lower level API and like I said you don't get the the request response and you know you you have to do things more manually right so that's kind of where we're looking, but you know, for the most part, it hasn't been nailed down, still tinkering, just kind of figure out where, you know, where it needs to go, based on how it needs to be
0: implemented. Right? Do you think it's a given that we're going to get native HTTP2 support in core, or is, is there, are there other paths that are just as likely?
1: I don't think it's a given yet. I think in a large part, it depends on, on how much additional complexity it adds. It would be possible to implement this as a native add-on, uh, you know, which, you know, has its own drawbacks right?
0: And if, if your door, um in Dutton already has one of those, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, so there's the, the Node Speedy, and there's a, there's a couple of them. There, there's, there's actually an HTTP2 module add-on on NPM now that's it, kind of growing in popularity. Several of the challenges with those existing implementations is that they are a bit slow. Most of them operate in JavaScript, they're not actually implemented as native libraries. And they just don't really have the performance there, and there are differences in the APIs that kind of make them a little bit more difficult to work with. That said, people are using them and they're doing some fantastic things with them. So there's definitely a case to be made for going that approach. The exploration right now is to really see just how feasible it would be to get an idea of, uh, like I said, how much complexity it adds. And if we can do this in a way that one doesn't break existing users, right? We're not so we're not touching the existing HTTP code, but delivers significant new benefits and functionality, and it's fast then I think a a definite case can be made for landing it in CORE. The fact that this is still an open question is why I'm doing this in a separate repo. It's the development branch on the main repo. Going this route will allow myself and others that want to play around with it the ability to build a version of Node with this built into it so they can experiment with it before any kind of commitment is made to get it into CORE.
0: Do you have a feel for what the adoption curve looks like for HTTP 2? Is it something that's just going to replace HTTP within a matter of years, or is it going to be more like IPv6, which has been extremely painful to transition to?
1: I think the the answer lies somewhere in between there. It's not going to be a a quick transition because there is... Just think of the, the number of HTTP servers that are sitting out there that people just aren't going to touch, right? They're there, they work you know there's no reason to to update those and and change those so http1 is not going anywhere anytime soon you know that said that you know there are significant deployments of http2 anytime you access google from either firefox or chrome you're using http2 anytime you're accessing pretty much any of the major web properties you're going over http2 now you have http2 support on iOS and Android now if those stacks, the client stacks on those detect that HTTP2 is available on the server, then those mobile devices will use it, take advantage of it, and it's really transparent to the user. So I think that over, over, over time, it will grow. How quickly it'll grow is still kind of an open question, but I think it's definitely something that we need to be stepping towards. So.
0: Okay. Uh, and so one last thing on HTTP2. I know there's a, there's a bit of a problem with crypto, isn't there? Tell us about that one. Yeah,
1: um, the HTTP2 spec itself, the RFC, does not require that you use TLS. But all of the browser implementations, I think, except for Microsoft's, and I, and I might actually be wrong, they might have changed, require HTTP2 connections over TLS. Which means, you know, even though the spec allows for it, you just simply would not and be able to use those browsers to talk to a HP2 server over plain text connection. And as anyone who's tried this knows that, you know, Node is not a great TLS terminator, right? In fact, you know, best practice is we tell folks don't use TLS directly with Node, but, you know, some kind of termin- you know, terminator in front of it like an Nginx or, or something else and reverse proxy into your Node instance over plain text connection. You know, just so you don't kill your performance, just handling all the crypto, right? That's going to get a bit tricky. You know, if somebody sets up a a Node HTTP2 server, we have to still make sure that they're able to get the performance benefit out of it. So it's going to get kind of tricky. The plan right now is to make it so that Node can can do both. You'll be able to set up a server that requires TLS or one plain text. You'll be able to use the client plain text or TLS. People need to know if they're setting up a web server you know, that needs to be accessed from a browser, then a TLS Terminator will be required.
0: Uh, or perhaps we'll come up with some magical middle ground where we can bolt on crypto on the end of HTTP2 that doesn't really suffer the same sort of performance problems we have. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, with, you know, with normal TLS. Interesting. A couple of other things you've been working on. I know you've been working on some error label stuff. And this is interesting because we in core, we treat errors as a, a similar major change if we're gonna change error text. You've got a plan for, for changing that, don't you?
1: Yeah, and this is, this is kind of a, a long running plan. This started, I think last, you know, just prior to V6 coming out. The plan is to attach a static error code to every error that node produces. Right now, the only way to know for sure what error was thrown by Node is to actually look at the error message, and we have lots of user code out there that parses error messages to kind of figure out what's going on, and that kind of sucks because I mean, even if we want to add a period, right, or you know, change the punctuation or change the you know, the wording in an error message just slightly, we end up breaking quite a bit of user code. In fact, I mean, our own tests in, in Node will break because we're using the error codes. The error messages, is a way of determining if a test succeeds or fails. As we move forward, if we can start attaching these static labels that do not change, the error message may change, but this label does not, then that gives developers a much more stable target to determine what happened. They'll be able to look at the error programmatically and determine, you know, what the conditions were. And they'll also have a a, a stable target. Like if they need to look up what this error, this failure condition was, was, they can Google that error code, right? You know, so there's there's a number of things that that can be done here. It's one of those those problems that seems simple, but it's actually fairly complicated to get this right because of the way Node does errors and the inconsistency in the way we throw or report errors, or you know where those errors are created. You know how those stack traces, you know, are are built. That kind of thing, it ends up being a bit more complicated to do this in a consistent way. So, I have a, I've had a pull request there for a while. Uh, decided to put it on hold through V6 and going to tackle it again here after V7 is is released, with an eye towards actually landing this in time for V8 as a summer major change.
0: We we had a lot of pain. I remember during the, the V4 to V5 period. I think it was. No, actually, maybe it was during V5 where we had a whole lot of error message fix-ups, like a lot of work input into error messages, making them consistent, just grammar, stuff like that. And the diff between the the sort of master branch that had these Semver major changes on it and the active release branch was enough that cherry-picking became really problematic. So it'd be nice simply for node development to get this sorted out.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's... Well, I don't think it's going to take too much more time to get there, but you're absolutely right. The the, the number of changes that were happening at that time just made it you know, very difficult to do this. I mean, I was actually, at the time, having to update, you know, rebase and update the, the PR several times per week just to try to keep it up to date with the changes, and you know, I just decided, okay, I'm just going to let this go, and you know, I, I, I have to return back to that PR here shortly and i know the number of changes are going to be astronomical <laughs> yeah
0: and and this impacts lts as well doesn't it because oh yeah like version 4 has still got the older error messages and so any change that happens in the master branch that we want to backport to version 4 tends to hit a whole lot of conflicts so it it, it, it just for the sake of keeping the lts branches updated and, and stable and safe sorting this out would be helpful yeah,
1: in fact, I mean, here within a week we're going to have two active LTS branches that, you know, these things are going to have to be managed across. So it's definitely going to be difficult. The, the one thing that I'm trying to do is that, you know, the PR is actually going to have a couple of different commits. And, and one of the commits, the, 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 the commit that actually adds the mechanism for adding the code, that can be a minor update. Because all we're doing is adding something to these errors. We're not actually, you know, we don't actually have to go through and take the other step of changing the error messages just yet. If we do this properly, what we can, what we should be able to do is backport that minor change to v6 and v4. So at the very least, we have these stable error codes as much as possible all the way back to four, so that we can give you know developers a transition path. Now, how feasible that's going to be is still an open question. But that's that's definitely a key goal. Once we have these codes in place, that's when you know there's additional work that needs to be done for fixing up error messages. Nodes error messages are not great. A lot of places they're detail challenged, a lot of places they're grammatically challenged. There's a, a number of improvements that continue to be made. And just you know getting more consistency. Once we have these codes in place then I, then we can work on making those improvements
0: let's move on to something entirely different tc39 oh, yeah. <laughs> a favorite topic so tc39 the, uh, the 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 body that's responsible for defining the javascript language under the ecma organization node and tc39 haven't had the tightest relationship historically but that's changing and you've recently got involved in some tc39 work can you tell us about your journey with tc39
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, this is you know, fairly recent. So we've had this issue with modules. So Node has modules and TC39 d- d- devised this different design for modules. It's actually part of the language now. And there's been a lot of interest from the, the ecosystem in having Node implement this, this TC39 version of modules. You know, Bradley Mech, um, or Bradley Price, has been looking into this for quite some time on how we can actually make this work. And it became very apparent very quickly that the way modules are defined by TC39 and the way we do it in Node are very, very different things. And it's going to be quite difficult to implement in a way that doesn't mean a loss of performance or loss loss of functionality, that kind of thing. So it's... It, it, it became a very difficult technical challenge. Unfortunately, it also ended up being a, a pretty difficult conversation with TC39. There was a lot of miscommunication that was happening between you know those of us on the node side and people over on the TC39 side, and the, and the relationship got fairly strained there. With quite a bit of kind of public bickering going back and forth on Twitter and that kind of thing. So a few weeks ago. Decided to to kind of step into it in the middle. I you know I have a pretty long history with working with standards organizations like W three C and IETF, and you know working with standards groups is is it's you know something I, I have quite a bit of experience with. I decided to kind of put that experience to use here and try to be kind of a liaison between Node and TC thirty nine and kind of represent Node's interests on that uh, on that body. Fortunately, IBM is a member of ECMA. We end up having the privilege of being able to go, you know, sit in on the TC thirty nine meetings and have a say in what's happening there. So, kind of using that position within IBM to uh, to represent Node's interest in that board, and hopefully we're, you know, get the discussion back on the right track.
0: Do Do you see a brighter future there for Node with TC thirty nine, and how how do you see that playing out?
1: Uh, you know, it, it it turns out that quite a few members of TC thirty nine care very deeply about Node and about making sure that. That you know, Node is able to implement the features of the language appropriately and, and well in well, in a way that benefits users, right? And so I think you know, just being at the table and you know, being part of the discussion means that that relationship will continue to improve, right? You know, there, there's there's bound to be difficult conversations with standards work, and you know, all this kind of stuff. There's always difficult conversations. There's always challenges that need to be looked at. For the most part, just being part of the conversation is 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 what's needed, and I think that's what we've been missing.
0: Okay, well, I you know expect to hear more news about that, and perhaps we can share future TC39 news that's not necessarily modules related with the Node audience, because I'm sure it will be interesting for people.
1: Oh yeah, there's all there is all kinds of fun stuff proposals that are being put on the table. So as as we go along here, I'd, be, uh, I'd love to kind of go through some of those proposals and talk about how they would impact node developers. It's
0: kind of fun. Yeah, and perhaps we should get Bradley on the show as well to dig into some of the, the, the dirty details of, of some of these things and how they might impact node users. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's move on now to the final part of the show where I'd like to get words of advice from our, our sage guests. So this is words of advice for, for younger programmers, people who are new to Node and people who are looking for advice from, you know, people they hold in high esteem. So considering your history, what you know about the industry and, and you know, all that kind of stuff and, and Node itself, what are some advice you can give to the younger programmers out there?
1: You know, I'd, I'd have to say probably the main thing is don't be, don't be afraid to fail. You know, there's, you know there, there's always going to be something you don't know. Right? even those of us that, are, that have been doing this for so long I've been writing code since I was eight years old there's there's more I don't know than, than what I do know and you know if, if you're doing really interesting things you're always going to come up with something that is new uh, to you right and new you know yeah, something you don't necessarily have the experience in feel free to go out and explore it you know um, you know if you if you write some code then look at it later and say hey that really sucked how can I improve this right that's okay Right, it, it's definitely something that, as you know, you know, learning as you go is is I think a, a major key to success in this industry. And you know, and another part of that is don't get too locked into any one technology. You know, so Node is great, but you know, it's not the only thing out there. Right, there's you know, there's Swift, there's there's still Java. You know, there's there's lots of developers that are you know that are on.net .NET or, you know, Ruby and all these other things. There's, there's tons of different platforms and frameworks. And, you know, the, the more you explore all of the different options, the more rounded your experience is going to get and the greater your perspective is going to be. You know, it's, you know I, I, I don't look at, at any of these platforms as being better than the others. It's just a different point of view, right? I think maintaining that, that point of view is essential.
0: Yeah, we can get kind of stuck into um, our little corners, can't we, and Barrack for our team, rather than viewing the the landscape as a whole, as, as we're all trying to achieve very similar things. Even though you've said don't get locked into one technology, is is there what do you see about the future of technology of our industry, even with Node? Where are things heading now that people should keep an eye on? What are the interesting new developments that, in our industry that you think will become increasingly relevant so we should tune into? Is there anything you want to highlight or is it just more general keep your eyes open advice? Yeah,
1: you know, the, the, the more general keep your eyes open stuff is, is you know, always my first answer to that, that kind of thing. You know, But in, in terms of emerging technologies, there's some really cool things happening with blockchain. You know, when I first was starting to look at blockchain, I kind of gave it a shrug, like, eh, you know, okay. I didn't quite get it. I, I think there was a significant amount of potential there for doing some some really interesting type things. Uh, some of the other, you know, yeah, areas in, in kind of cognitive development, there's, you know, Fuzzy.io. It's a project and a company started by a friend of mine. And, and they're, they're basically pr- pr- providing a, a developer API for Basic fuzzy logic and computer intelligence types of applications. And it's extremely accessible. You know, you don't need a, a data science degree to to, to, to start getting in and, and, and playing around with it. Things like that that start allowing these more complex technologies to become more accessible. I think are going to continue to be key. Things like IoT and you know even Node and you know some of these things that we've seen on the trends for the past year or so more and more we're gonna to start to see those things just become part of the fabric, right? They're gonna become more background. It's gonna be the, the applications built on top of that that are gonna become more critical. So yeah, just kind of keeping your eyes open, seeing where things go.
0: Fair enough. Let's try and wrap this up then. So now we're gonna move into a time of plugs where we get to plug something not necessarily tech related. And, and I'm gonna go first. Just to set the tone here, <laughs> uh, I watched a great documentary the other day. It was on Netflix. It called The Barclay Marathons, subtitled The Race That Eats It's Young. It's a feature-length documentary, and it is absolutely fascinating and a little bit inspiring too. If you like quirky people and quirky ideas, you should absolutely check this out because it's about this this crazy race that's apparently one of the hardest races in the world. That takes place in Tennessee every year, and uh, it's it's extremely quirky and and humorous, but also inspiring. So I recommend you go and check that out. The Barkley Marathons. James, what's your plug? Uh, you know I
1: think this is going to go back to you know the conversation we had earlier about going camping. You know, take take vacation. Like everybody needs vacation time, time where they just put the laptop away, the phone away, the the tablet. You know, every, you know all the electronic devices. Just put them away and go out and enjoy yourself. You know, out outside somewhere, right? I think uh, um, far too often, especially in this industry, people just kind of get locked into. You know, hey, I got to get this code written. You know, I'm supporting all these modules, right? Especially, you know, a lot of the developers that do contribute to open source, they try to take on so much, and they just forget to take that time for themselves. It, it, it's critical. You know, if you don't want to put away all the electronic devices. Just keep your Netflix open and watch, you know, binge watch Luke Cage or something on, uh, on Netflix. That's always a good thing. So.
0: I, to be honest, I'm, 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 I've had a bit enough of the comic book adaptions for TV and movies, so I haven't watched Luke Cage, but I hear lots of good reviews of it. <laughs> it
1: it's it, it's very good. It's it's a lot lower key than uh, the Daredevil and Jessica Jones. Yeah, I, I I'm a big Marvel nerd when it comes to this stuff, so I'm like edge of my seat excited for iron fist coming next year and the defenders and all this kind of stuff it's
0: uh, yeah somehow it's just not my thing i i I don't think i was ever a comic (laughs) nerd but yeah anyway i I think i'm in a minority probably in this audience upcoming events so with a, a couple of upcoming events i want to highlight and it's actually i mean i'm pretty sure this recording is going to come out too late for uh node conf eu which is actually happening which is next Monday and Tuesday, I think, so um, this recording will probably be out after it's done, so we'll be able to look forward to some great videos from NodeConf EU showing up in Ireland. There's also Node Interactive North America happening in Austin, Texas, and that's at the end of November. It's going to be a big event. We're all going to be there. And the the speaker schedule—I'm actually really impressed. It's one of the best conference lineups I've seen in a long time. So check that out because um, I think I think that'll be probably a, a one of the highlights of the Node calendar for a while and there's also node fest tokyo that's happening that's november the 12th to 13th in tokyo i think and i believe james is going to be there and i did that one last year and that was really fun i really enjoyed tokyo so if you're in that area you should check that out there are a great bunch of people over there yeah i'm looking forward to that one yeah so uh, and i think around the same time is going to be play node south korea i don't have dates for that handy but that's a similar one there. The, the South Korean node community is quite big and active as well. If you're in that area, go check that out. That's plain node. That's all I'm going to highlight for now because I don't have a complete list in front of me. But uh, if you've got events coming up, please contact one of us. Add node up on Twitter if you want to get on this regular announcement list. I, I, um,
1: I would add sorry. for for node interactive in Austin that the, we will have the Collaborator Summit as part of that. So any you know, a, you know anyone's interested in uh, contributing to Node or any existing contributors should plan to to, to join that session. We're also going to be doing the Code and Learn session again as part of the conference. So anyone who wants to contribute to Node Core who hasn't already can come to that. When we did this in, in Amsterdam, we had the single largest number of new PRs ever in Node's history in a single day. (laughs) <laughs> just from that one one event, it was you know it was
0: it was kind of crazy. That, that's a really really low barrier to entry, isn't it? Like oh yeah. Going through that process.
1: Oh yeah, and that the process you know walks you through setting up your dev environment. You have a ton of mentors on, on, on site. The PRs you know they don't have to be complex. We had some that were just like fixing one or two lines of, uh, of things in either docs or tests. It's really just intended to get your feet wet with the process. And kind of figure out you know okay you know, you know how to you know get some first steps under your belt and kind of go from there you know and we'll see if you know the folks like it like the process if they, if they hang the process enough then hopefully they'll come back and contribute more. Uh,
0: another thing I will mention that's in the same vein actually is the Node Foundation is participating in the outreachy program next year which is a, a diversity initiative. It's primarily focused in North America but there is a uh, there is some international opportunity for for people to be involved. I don't have the, the uh, URL you go to. James, do you know how people can nominate to be involved in that as a men- mentee?
1: There is a link, I think,
0: in the education repo. No, there's issue number seven in the education repo. that uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so Tracy, Tracy, who actually I'd like to get on for a one-on-one one day, she's uh, coordinating this. I think probably the best is to contact Tracy Hines from the foundation.
1: Before we wrap up the, the events, you know, one other thing that I would mention about Node Interactive is that there is a diversity scholarship as part of the event. If you are buying your ticket and you want to donate a little bit extra on your registration costs, IBM will match that donation uh, dollar for dollar up to, up to $5,000 cumulative and apply that donation. To purchasing a ticket for someone who otherwise would not be able to attend.
0: Very cool. So that, is that on the sign-up form then for the ticket form?
1: Yeah. So uh, as you're going through your registration, there's an option there for contributing to the scholarship.
0: Okay, that might um, bring in some some people that otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. That's great. Okay, well uh, let's wrap up then. Thanks, uh, James, for joining us today. You can catch James on Twitter. He's uh, J A Snell, S N E W L on Twitter, and also J A Snell on GitHub. You can follow NodeUp on Twitter at NodeUp and hear about show announcements and, and whatnot. You can even sponsor the show if you like. If you'd like to get your company to help contribute to keeping these shows going and have your company or product broadcast here, email nodeup at gmail.com for more info. And that's it for me and James. It's goodbye. Yeah,
1: this has been fun. Thanks for the email.